Good morning, Grace City. Good morning, guests. My name is Matt Hand, the pastor and teacher at Grace City Church. I'm excited for what the Lord has for us this morning, beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 24, that I invite you to turn to as we examine some different sections of the story of King David. If 2020 was a, was a movie, how many of you would like to see a spoiler right about now? If you could look ahead a month, three months, six months, 12 months, maybe even 24 or 36 months and see how some of the different aspects of this COVID-19 pandemic played out in terms of what actually happens with people's health, what happens with our hospitals, what happens with the economy, what happens with my job, with my finances, what happens with culture at large, wouldn't you at least take a peek if that opportunity availed itself to see what's going to happen in the future. And if you could see what was going to happen in the future, don't you think that what you saw would have direct bearing on how you lived your life then leading up to that point? See, these, these questions and the point I'm making is that our ultimate destiny or outcomes of certain situations has tremendous bearing on day-to-day -day life. What we know, or at least believe to be true about the future, has tremendous consequences for the decisions that we make today. Going back to scripture, Saul was the very first king of Israel, but Saul had a very bad habit of just kind of doing whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, completely disregarding the word of the Lord. So very often God would say, do this, and Saul would say, eh, I kind of want to do this other thing instead. And Saul would just do what he wanted to do. So after one of these instances of rebellion in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, God says to him, but now Saul, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So God sends a prophet by the name of Samuel to a town called Bethlehem and says, when you go there, I'm going to show you who the next future king of Israel is going to be, and I want you to anoint him to show that he's the next in line behind Saul. So Samuel goes, and he finds this family of a man named Jesse, and he goes through these seven sons of Jesse, and God says, not him, not him, not him, not him. And you know Samuel's probably exasperated. Well, are there any other sons? And Jesse says, well, yes, I have this one young son who's out in the field, you know, tending the sheep. And Samuel says, well, let me talk to him. He goes out, he meets David, and the Lord says, this is the one. This is the one that you are to anoint as the next king of Israel. So he does, and the spirit of the Lord comes upon David. He moves to the capital city where Saul is king, and he becomes kind of a court musician where when Saul had this evil spirit that troubled him, he would call David, David would come in and play, and it would calm his nerves and he would be better off. He, he kind of graduates from there to being also Saul's armor bearer. So he's in a position where this famous story in 1 Samuel 17 unfolds. You notice the story of David versus Goliath. And he sees that you know, the people of God are in constant battle against the people of the Philistines. And this giant from the Philistine comes down and he taunts the armies of God. And he mocks God of the God of Israel. And he says, you know, if I defeat your champion, then you, we, you, know, you all will serve us. You'll become slaves of the Philistine people. And 
of course, this famous story where little boy David goes out on the battlefield with just a sling and some stones, and he slays this giant as the representative of God's people, as the anointed to lead God's people. And so all the people win this amazing victory. And then the women of the villages start this little chant where they say, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. And Saul hears this, and of course, he's very jealous and he's angry. So he calls David in and tricks him and says, hey, play some music for me. And while David's focused on playing, he takes his spear and he hurls it at David and tries to pin him to the wall. And David barely escapes with his life. And Saul's thinking to himself, how do I get rid of this kid? And he has a plan. Well, if he's so good at battle, then I'm going to make him a commander of one of my armies. I'm going to send him out in battle against the Philistines and the Philistines can do my dirty work. They can kill him. And there's a couple really ironic verses in chapter 18 that say this, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. And when he tries to kill David multiple times in multiple different ways, and David keeps escaping and continuing to have success, it goes on to say, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, Saul was even more afraid of David. So to summarize the next several chapters of 1 Samuel Saul actually tells his son and all his servants, it's open season on David. Anyone can kill David without any kind of consequence. And David flees for his life. He's out in the Judean wilderness. Saul actually mounts this army of like thousands of his own soldiers who ought to be off battling the enemies of God. But no, instead they're pursuing this one man all over the Judean hillside. This brings us to 1 Samuel 24 where I directed you a few moments ago. And I want to just read a a particular story with you from this chapter. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of that cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now, after he's some distance away, the story goes on to say that David calls out to him and says, hey, my Lord, you didn't know but check your garment, you might be missing something, you know, shows him the corner of the garment that he's cut off and and shows him that he had the opportunity to just sneak up behind him and slit his throat or stab him in the back and take his life. And there's this exchange where Saul realizes you're more righteous than I am because you are the next king of Israel. And he actually says that. He says, verse 20, now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So don't worry, I'm going to stop pursuing you. I won't, I won't do any harm to you, David. But spoiler alert there, Saul lied. 
as he often lied, and he continues for a number of chapters to pursue David to continue to attempt his life. There's actually another situation in the wilderness of Ziph where Saul is camping with his armies and he goes to sleep at night. Samuel with some of his men sneak down into the camp. He literally walks right up to the sleeping Saul, again having an opportunity to take his life. And he takes instead the water jar and the spear that are Saul's head. And he goes some distance away and he again calls out to Saul and says, hey, Check around you. You might be missing a few things. And Saul realizes David again has had the opportunity to kill me, but hasn't availed himself of that opportunity. Several chapters later, Saul is actually in battle against the Philistines. He is wounded from some distance by archers who then, uh, you know, in order to not be tortured and killed by the Philistine army, he falls on his own sword and takes his life and instead of rejoicing and throwing a party, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 1 that when this news comes to David that Saul is dead, the Bible said David actually grieves, he mourns, and he proclaims a fast because he recognized him as the Lord's anointed, a man still worthy of honor because of the position that the Lord had given him. Well, 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 4, we find that David is finally himself anointed king of Judah, which are the two southern tribes of the whole people of Israel. But it's going to be another seven years where the house of David and the house of Saul still kind of are both vying for the throne of Israel. That brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 5, where I want to read a few more verses with you. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led, led us out and brought us in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now verse 10, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. When the New Testament, the Apostle Paul summarizes this whole conflict that I've just shared with you, this is Acts 13, verse 22. He simply says, and when God had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now, here's a key that I want to give you before I get into a couple application points with you. And the key is this that David was confident of his destiny. He was confident that God had chosen him and called him and anointed him. So when he goes into battle against Goliath, instead of being afraid, he's able to act on God's agenda. And when the armies of Saul and Saul himself are pursuing him for probably years of his life, seeking to kill you know, Israel's most wanted, this marked man, instead of walking in fear, he's able to walk in confidence because he knew what the Lord's plan and agenda and destiny for his life 
was, when he himself had opportunities to kill Saul and claim his throne, he lived by faith because he knew the destiny that God had for him. When Israel didn't recognize his leadership for a whole seven years after he becomes king of Judah, he's able to rest, he's able to wait on God's timing because he had confidence in God's destiny for his life. So this is the one big idea I want to give you this morning and then unpack a little bit with you. This, this text, this story, as we are learning ourselves how to worship in the waiting and the suffering that we find ourselves in right now, here's your one big idea. Be so confident in the outcome of God's work in your life that you can surrender to whatever process he takes to get you there. Be so confident of the outcome of God's work in your life that you can surrender yourself to whatever process the Lord takes you through to get you to that outcome. So I want to talk to you today briefly about the outcome and the process that God has planned for your life. And I actually want to start with the ending. I want to start with the ending because if you're a follower of Jesus, that is if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's your Lord and he's your Savior, then point one is perfection which is the outcome of God's process. Perfection is going to be your destiny. Perfection is going to be the result of God's work in your life. Where you're going to land with God, if you are a follower of Jesus, is completion or perfection. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. He will do what? He will keep you blameless. He will make you blameless or without blemish. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, this, this beautiful text that I encourage you to read through and meditate through on trials. And he says, yes, in this present life, on this earth, trials are going to be the norm. You are going to have to wait. You are going to suffer. There's going to be brokenness and pain. But he says this, but the outcome of your faith is the salvation of your souls. Romans 6, 22 and 23 says the end of God's work in your life is eternal life. So you, friends, were destined for eternal life, for fullness of joy in God's presence. And my question is simply, if like David, you had confidence in the ultimate outcome or the ultimate destiny or destination that God is taking you to, how would that impact everyday life now when you are stuck in the waiting? How does that give shape to your life? And I think it gives us at least two things. It gives us perspective and it gives us hope. Because when we are confident of the destiny, when we're confident of the perfection that God is going to ultimately work in our lives, we're able to have this bigger perspective than just the moment by moment suffering and waiting and pain and frustration and stress and exhaustion. Because we, we see a bigger picture and we know that the end of the story, the spoiler, we know that it is a real and a sure and a confident hope. 
And that word hope is so important because instead of just giving up, instead of giving up on God, instead of giving up on the process, when we can see the end from the beginning, we have hope to continue and stay in the process. When I was a kid, I loved going to my grandparents' house in Florida. Florida represented for me a ton of fishing. We got to go to the beach, see the ocean, play down there. There was always something kind of extraordinary that my grandparents planned for us. There was Disney World or there was Sea World or Bush Gardens or something amazing like that. So I loved vacation in Florida as a kid. You know what I didn't love? I didn't love the entire day crammed in the car with my family driving down there. And I did not like the entire day crammed in the car with my family driving back home. Okay. Now, I know some of you love the journey. I did not love the journey. I only loved the destination. But part of what we find in the David story and all throughout Scripture is that God is deeply interested in both the outcome and the process. Or to put it another way, he's deeply interested in both the destination and also the journey. He is not racing people from point A to point B. So when he tells David and even anoints David as king, he is not racing to get David there as quickly and as effortlessly as possible. What you find very often in scripture is God takes his sweet time because God enjoys the process that he's working in his life. This brings us to point two. So I said point one, the The perfection is the outcome of God's process as he's working in your life. But point two, the purpose is the why. Why is God doing this process or what is he ultimately up to? If God is not just teleporting us from here to our final destiny, but is taking us through a very purposeful process day by day in good times and in bad, in joy and in sorrow, in brokenness and in laughter, What is the purpose of that waiting? What is the purpose even of the suffering? Well, before I get to that, we often act, even as Christians, as if the purpose of life is to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain. We often act as if the purpose of life is to to find our identity through expressive individualism, you know, just to, to be this new amazing person that's never been before. And we, we act as if that's the purpose of life, to just do things our way. And by the way, if you think that that's the purpose of life, it's no wonder that you're stressed. It's no wonder that you're exhausted. It's no wonder that you're filled with fears and doubts and anxiety because the COVID-19 pandemic has stripped away your very purpose. Now, I believe that God gives us a purpose for this process that, that supersedes not just the best things that happen to you, but it includes the worst things that happen to you. That even when you're stuck waiting on God, as we all are right now in this season of our lives, God is still up to this purpose. And according to Romans 8, 29, that purpose for the process is to conform you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Okay? Everything in your life, everything, the pleasure and the pain, the good and the bad, the joy and the sorrow is all designed by a sovereign God to make you more like Jesus. We saw this in the story of David, by the way. 
This is not just a New Testament thing. David was destined to be king. He knew that from the time he was a young boy. But God put him through a process so that David would become a man after God's own heart. See, because when when God looks at humanity, he doesn't find someone after his own heart other than Jesus. And so he has to fashion a man after his own heart after his own heart. And and that's the purpose for this process that David is going through, waiting 15, 20, 27 years to, to come into the fullness of what God had anointed him to be. The process was designed about taking things away from David and putting new things in David's life so that he would become a man of God and a man who reflected the character and the faith and the hope and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. How is God doing the same for you? Or to put it another way, the purpose of God is to sanctify you. The purpose of God is to take certain things away and to put certain things in their place to make you more like him, to to make you more holy, to make you more loving. Ephesians 2.10 says we are God's workmanship. We are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to act like Christ Jesus. Okay, so pausing there for a moment, what is God using this pandemic, this season of waiting? What is he using this to remove from your life? What is he using this season to put in your life in its place? What is he adjusting so that you become a person who looks less like your old person, broken and scared and selfish, and more like your new person made after the image of Jesus Christ? Okay, so that's the ending, that's the destination, that's also the purpose. Now I want to just quickly show you two more things. The first is what God is up to in your life in real time, and the second is how he calls you to respond. So what God is up to, and I'll give you two sub-points on that, and then how God calls you to respond. So points three and four are God's presence and God's power. His presence and his power, and they're, they're very much interrelated. The, the presence is kind of the who of the process, And the power is kind of the how. But as I say, they're very much interrelated. And I would point you back to the the story of David in 1 Samuel from 16, the time of his anointing on, and just track out the number of times the story says the Lord was with him. And actually gives this as the secret of David's success is that the Lord is with him. That from the moment of his anointing and the spirit of God comes upon him, then David goes forward in his life, walking with and in the light of that presence. The same Lord as David's Lord says to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, when Jesus goes away and he ascends to heaven, and his disciples are like, oh no, what are we gonna do now? Jesus is gone. We've never done life this way without Jesus before. And he, but he makes this promise, I will send my spirit, not just to be with you, but to be in you to be equipping you, empowering you, guiding you, leading you, present with you. And this is so important that Jesus is not just saying, hey, here's a roadmap to the destination. I'll catch you on the flip side. But he's saying, I will be with you. I will walk with you through this journey, through this process. I said point four is the power, the how. You know, basically, as we look at the the roadmap and we look at the destination, we say, okay, I understand something of God's purpose. I understand something of God's destination. Um, How do I do that? 
you know, and, and religion would come along and say, well, you, you do it by willpower. You know, you do it by self-discipline. You get these great disciplines in your life and you read the Bible and you pray and you deny yourself. And, and yes, in a way it's those things, but, but, but not apart from the ultimate power of God. And this is such an important point of the David story and part of why I shared 1 Samuel 17 where David defeats Goliath. You know, let's not conclude wrong things there. The, the point of David versus Goliath is not like, hey, identify the giants in your life and have the courage to go, you know, kick tail. Okay? That, that's not the point of the story. David was able to defeat Goliath because the presence and power of God rested upon David's life. Okay? He was a type of the Messiah representing the people of God. He knew God's power firsthand. He knew that God was not just with him, but that God was for him, was equipping him. And, and by the way, even David's enemies recognized that the presence and power of God that rested on David's life was the key to his success. But Ephesians 3.20 says the same power is at work in you. Philippians 2.13 says God works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. In other words, yes, God has this process laid out for you, but the very power of God that commands you to do certain things and to be certain things is actually being and doing that with you and in you and for you. It's so important that the the gospel, the grace of Jesus Christ comes first because apart from his power, you can't be and you can't do. So that's what God's up to in real time. As he's walking you through a process of change, as he's walking you through a process of becoming the person that he intends for you to be, he's with you, his presence, his power. But now how do we respond? And this is points five and six. Five is the priority, I'm calling it the priority, the, the what of God's process. And a key phrase that we uncover in this long season of waiting in David's life is this. It says, David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. Again, David inquired of the Lord. David was constantly going back to God and asking questions like, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? What do you want this to look like, God? Is this your time? And over and over again, inquiring of the Lord. Why? Because he says, God, your priorities, your agenda are my priorities and my agenda. I just want to do your will, whatever your will is. If that means waiting 20 years to become king, I'll wait 20 years to become king because your priority in the process is my priority in the process. And in this way of constantly seeking God and inquiring of God, David learned to love what God loved. He learned the heart of God. God was conforming David into the image of his son because the more he inquired and listened and walked in faith and repentance, the more he became like Jesus. When you're in the process of becoming like Jesus, how would you find your own priorities? How would you know what God's priorities are for you? Well, we would do it the same way David did in a sense of inquiring of the Lord but let me be careful to say that the way that we inquire of the Lord today, first and foremost, is simply by knowing this book, by loving this book, by pouring ourselves into this book, which are the very words of God. And there's, there's this false trend that's, I think, always kind of hung around, but I hear it as much now as ever, 
that there are people who even claim to be followers of God who mostly ignore this book and then say that God told them to do X, Y, or Z that's in direct contradiction of this book. Or they say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask God about that. And then you can, you can even counsel them and say, well, this is what he says about that marriage, or this is what he says about that decision or that attitude, or this is how he says to go about repenting and knowing him more deeply. And if you're dismissing what God is saying here, and you're just like, yeah, I'm going to go look for him somewhere else, that is not what it means to inquire of the Lord. If we want to know the priorities of God's agenda for our lives, the priorities of God's process, we've got to know this book. We've got to be people of this book. Well, now in closing, I come to what's maybe actually the hardest part of these six things that I'm communicating to you. And that is what I'm calling perseverance or the when of God's process. And you notice in the David story, God goes to David, he anoints him as a little boy, says, you're king, but not yet. And I think the way most of us want this story to go is like God makes David king and boom, he's king. And he takes down Saul and gets rid of Saul because Saul's a rebel. And, and, and finally, Israel's got the king that they, they actually need and David, and it's going to be awesome. And the reality is he has got to wait 15, 20, 27 years or so. And in the meantime, one of the reasons I kind of traced you through this story, walked you through this story, is so you could see the tremendous patience and perseverance that David exhibited in the meantime. That even though he knows that he is God's anointed, I mean, he was there. The oil flowed over his head. He knows that he's the king. And yet the patience to say, God, if this is your destiny for my life, I am going to wait for you to do what you want to do in your time. And that's what I say is sometimes the hardest part. To know that God wants to do certain things in our lives, is going to do certain things in our lives. And we're like, okay, great, God. Uh, I've decided that you should do that now. I, I, think you should, I think you should fulfill that promise like ASAP. And it's so hard to let God be God in the process, to let him slow you down sometimes when you want to speed up. And, and then sometimes God is accelerating things like, Suffering right now is an accelerator for a lot of things that God is doing in your life. As C.S. Lewis says, pain is this megaphone where God is shouting at you and things are speeding up, even as other things are slowing down. And this is part of what we don't like. You know, me personally, when, when I've decided that I'm ready for God to make a change in my life that I've identified as necessary, I don't want him to take decades to do that. I want him to do that stacked. And probably most of you are the same way. But here's what I want you to kind of understand in conclusion. God is not mass producing Toyota Corollas. He is handcrafting Lamborghinis. And make no mistake, when God is at the end of the process that he's working in your life, which he is in no hurry to accomplish, because the process is as important as the outcome, the the journey is as important to God as the destination. But make no mistake, when he's done with his handiwork in your life, it's a Lamborghini, not a Corolla, okay? He's doing something unique. He's doing something beautiful. And we need the faith to be patient, to, 
to persevere, to neither run ahead of God in impatience nor drag behind God because we don't like the accelerated pace that he does certain things. So how do we worship in the waiting? Well, it's by surrendering to God's process in our life. It's by saying basically, God, I want what you want. I want it how you want it. I want it for the reasons that you want it. And maybe most of all, God, when I'm stuck waiting, and this is hard to confess, but I say in faith, God, I want your process to be accomplished in my life also when you want it. So just once again, back to this big idea. Be confident or be so confident of the outcome of God's work in your life that you can surrender to whatever process he takes you through to get you there.